G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. To get there, we've said you've got to live by these seven principles and we've noticed that these seven principles are built into Gideon's life. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. This week, Pastor Jeff is still taking us through more principles found in Gideon's life to help us live as the instruments of God for God's purpose. He says there's seven principles we should learn. And today we look at number three. God will lead you to do what brings Him the most glory. But that's enough from me. Let's hear now from Pastor Jeff on Today with Jeff Vines. On the 28th of November, 1979, Air New Zealand Flight 901 flew straight into Mount Erebus just off Ross Island, Antarctica. All 237 passengers were killed, plus 20 crew. To this day, it remains Air New Zealand's most devastating and only air disaster. It was meant to simply be a sightseeing flight. They would leave Auckland sometime in the morning, spend a few hours over the Antarctica continent, and then return. Previous tourists described the experience as the most amazing, majestic, wonder-filled landscape they had ever seen. Sometime in that morning on the 28th, November 1979, the plane seemed to have simply disappeared. No radar detected the flight. There were no voices heard over the comm systems. Search and rescue teams were sent out somewhere around midnight and the wreckage was sighted on the lower slopes of Mount Erebus. My friend, Bill McCarthy, who read the news for TV One for over 30 years was actually the newscaster to release that story. Many Kiwis were horrified. How could this happen to such a safe and respectable airline? The plane in fact had crashed into the mountain while accelerating speed. So the debris looked like an explosion, disintegration. There was nothing in sight. In other words, the pilots had no idea they were flying directly toward a mountain. And that was the mystery of it all because these were the best pilots, the most experienced Air New Zealand had. So an inquiry was launched and the blame game began. What made it worse is the relatives needed closure. The wives of the pilots needed to sense some truth. They needed to know what happened to their husbands and to all of these passengers and crew. Air New Zealand attempted to blame the pilots from the beginning, suggesting that they were violating the rules of safe flying by flying lower than 6,000 feet. But others spoke of a lack of training and a failure in the systems of Air New Zealand 
to equip its pilots to deal effectively with something called whiteout, where there's no clear distinction between land and mountain and sky. Justice Peter Mahan's Royal Commission of Inquiry placed the blame on Air New Zealand, but Air New Zealand never agreed. The argument was made that the wrong coordinates were topped in the navigation system, but that was never admitted to. The battle raged for months, months of frustration, confusion, lack of closure. The families of 237 passengers lived year after year without knowing the truth and they found it unbearable. Closure was never given. The truth was never declared. And the reason I bring this up, folks, listen, the truth is our most valuable commodity. Truth matters concerning everything. It matters concerning our relationships. Tell a wife that truth does not matter in the marriage. Truth leads to trust, trust to security, security to hope. Truth matters when you're flying a plane. Tell the passengers of flight 901 that truth does not matter. The pilot may feel he is safe, but the wrong coordinates are the wrong coordinates. And next thing you know, you're flying into a mountain. Truth matters when you're building a house. Years ago, I remember reading an article about a postmodern house that was being constructed. And uh, the article talked about how there were windows in this house uh, with no apparent reason, no view on the outside. There were walls that were unbalanced and unequal. There were staircases leading to no, nowhere. And this postmodern house was supposed to reflect the mind of modern man. Someone was overheard saying, I'll bet they didn't do the same thing with the foundation. Facts do not cease to exist just because they are ignored. And most things in life stand or fall on truth. Now, knowing the truth about your life, we have said is crucial to living life in a way that produces the desired outcome. Many times I've quoted the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who said that I have learned to define life backwards. First, determine the goal and then live life accordingly. You might say, well, what is the goal? The only way to determine the goal of your life is to know your origin. That's why the battle for the beginning is the most important battle mankind fights. What is origin? Where did we come from? Because the foundation of origin is fundamentally tied to our meaning. That's why we're repeating in this series over and over, there are two ways to live your life. One, you believe there's no God and there's no meaning, period. There's no meaning to anything or anyone. You're just kidding yourself. You're nothing more, nothing less than a collocation of atoms. But the other way to live your life, which is more sensical, is that you have come from God. You're created in the image of God. You are the instrument of God for the purposes of God to return to God. Let me say that again. You have come from God, created in the image of God, the instrument of God for the purposes of God to return to God. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, for many human beings, despair is not only a moment, but it's a way of life. The big questions of life have not been answered. They have never discovered the ultimate point of reference. There's no meaning, no purpose, no destiny. And that cannot be true of we Christ followers. That's why we've begun a series called Wild Life. We've said that there is a way to live every day. Every single day when you wake up, there is an attitude with which to live life that is consistent with truth, that yields a life of fantastic wonder. The road less travel, the compelling life, the wild life, 
one that leads ultimately to what you are most desperately searching for. Now, just quickly, and we'll get into this third principle, but one of the questions aimed my way often goes like this. Why does my friend do everything wrong and their life is going so well? Now, stop for a moment. Are you still defining success as having plenty of money, building bigger barns, and gaining significance in the eyes of the world, and having no problems? But did not Jesus himself say, the Savior that we follow, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? What good is it to gain everything in the temporary and lose eternity? Do you still think that internal joy and satisfaction are tied to money and stuff and how people recognize or how many people recognize your name? If that's true, then should we not model our lives after the Hollywood elite? And yet, as we look at their lives, divorce and suicide rate are astronomical among those who have what we say, if we had, our lives would be fulfilled. Have we not placed a halo around the head of the unrealized? Christ's followers are supposed to be living the wild life. And that wild life assumes that we have come from God, created in the image of God. We are the instrument of God for the purposes of God to return to God. We've said all along that God wants to use you and me for a fantastic eternal victory. And all of your life is preparation for that. Every event, big, small, medium, is to prepare you for some fantastic eternal victory. World Series will fade, folks. Super Bowls will fade. The NBA Finals will fade. We'll forget by next year who won last year's title. But the victory to which you and I have been called began in your mother's womb and is working its way through your life every single day. To get there, we have said, you've got to live by these seven principles. And we've noticed that these seven principles are built into Gideon's life. In the Gideon narrative in Judges 6 through 7, we began to discover the characteristics of that wild life. Now, let me repeat the two that we've learned thus far. Number one, we've said that God will use the unfortunate events of my life to equip me for the greatest victories of my life. That is that God is an opportunist. Concerning both large and small events in your life, God is trying to build in you a type of staying power that allows him to accomplish something fantastic in you and through you. God will use the unfortunate events of your life to prepare you for the greatest victories of your life. And then two, we talked about the fact that God will often require us to do what seems to be unreasonable. It is true that God will often ask us to endure something that we absolutely do not want to endure, that we detest. Sometimes he requires us to make a decision about which we are totally and completely fearful of what might happen if we obey his command. However, we said that your greatest adventures and successes reside on the other side of that command in your obedience. And with the call of God come the wisdom and the power of God to give you the greatest victories of your life. Eternal stuff, things that last. Dallas Willard says this, listen carefully. What if your life, exactly as it is, is God's perfect environment for growing you into the person he wants you to become. When God told Gideon to decrease his army by 32,000 to 300, when he was already outnumbered by 13 to one, I am sure Gideon would have had a lump in his throat. When he realized that he's about to take 300 farmers 
to face 135,000 well-trained Midianite warriors, surely Gideon must have thought to himself, there has to be some mistake. But because God had built Gideon's faith in God's faithfulness in the past, Gideon now was able to trust God, obey God, and be poised for the ultimate victory of his life. And God said to Gideon, with these 300 men, I will deliver you. Now we come to the third installment, the third principle, the third attitude, which must govern your everyday life. And here it is. Number three, God will always lead you to do that which brings him, not you, the most glory. God will always lead you to do that which brings him, the most glory. In verse two of chapter seven, we read, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. I'll stop right there. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't want to give the Israelites any idea that this victory rests with them and that the glory will belong to the Israelite army. Now, if you think about this, if the odds had been four to one, they could have said, look, we were outnumbered, outmatched, but we did it. Perhaps even if the odds were 13 to one, you know, we fought hard. Look at what we did. We were outnumbered. They were warriors. We were farmers. Perhaps after the victory, they could have given each other the high five. Someone once said to Winston Churchill, I am a self-made man, to which Churchill replied, you have just relieved God from his most solemn responsibility. Again, if the odds were four to one, they could have said, we did it. 13 to one, look what we did. But if it's 135,000 well-trained Midianite warriors against 300 Israelite farmers, the odds would have been 450 to one. And the only way you can be victorious in that type of scenario is God. Let me say it again. God will always lead us to do that which gives him the most glory. At some point in our lives, we have to recognize that. Not only for our sake, but for the sake of the kingdom of God, we must embrace it. It must penetrate us. We must come to the conclusion that it truly is not about us. It's about something far more glorious, far more wonder-filled, far more eternal. You know, this past week, I was playing golf with a buddy of mine. I've got two friends I'm playing golf with. Uh, recently, and both are incredible golfers. Both are actually trying to, to make it on the tour. You know, they say that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you're supposed to be a professional. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. I've been doing this for more than 10,000 hours. I'm not a professional. And Brett reminded me that sometimes people just have a God-given ability to excel at certain things. And I say, wait a minute, if that's true of golf, it must be true of a financial planner, of a teacher, of someone who works in the media or the medical or creative arts or a preacher or a teacher. And if these are all gifts from God, on what basis then would we complain? I mean, why would we say, why did I not get that talent or ability when any talent or ability that we have is a gift of God anyway? And then again, why would we boast about how good we are at anything? Why would we say, I'm so glad that I have this incredible talent that rewards me so much. I'm a very special person. Why would we say that? Because the talent did not come from you. Both postures should be one of gratitude. The real problem is, most of us still think life is about our glory. And quite frankly, we're angry because we don't think we have enough of it. When any glory that we have 
is because a gift or talent or ability that God has given to us, but it's not about us in the first place. Now, along these same lines, and I think it is important to have these moments because a student wants to ask me, Pastor Jeff, why is God so concerned with his own glory? I mean, it sounds like to me, God has a glory addiction. I mean, the Bible says he's a jealous God. If I'm jealous, I get in trouble. Why can he be jealous and I can't be jealous? Let me see if I can explain this very heavy theological term in one simple example. Let's say that I have a cure for COVID-19 and my son has the disease. But let's say someone else also claims they have the cure when in fact, what they're offering will bring death. Because I love my son so much, I will be jealous for him. I will want my glory to shine. My cure for COVID-19 to outshine all counterfeit cures. And I will want to draw him away from the counterfeit to the thing that will truly save him and restore him. You see, if God is really God and he has our best interest in mind, then he would not sit idly by allowing counterfeits to take our allegiance away from the thing that will truly save to the thing that will destroy In the same way, God is jealous for you. We are constantly being drawn away to the things that will never deliver what they promise, never save, never give us hope or a future. And when these things are glorified above and beyond God, then we are led down a path of soul disintegration. Now, again, if God loves us, why would he sit idly by without intervening in that situation? So what does God do? Listen, what does God do? He uses his people and their circumstances to glorify his name, to pull us away from what is false, what can never deliver into the God who delivers and restores. Can I give you a painful example? You know, I thought about, you know, how can we give this, how can we illustrate this? How can we put skin onto this principle. Well, when Robin and I first went into Africa, it was a glorious time for us. You know, it was a new culture, a new way, an exciting adventure of what God will do. We were in our 20s. Uh, I can't tell you how happy we were when we discovered, we weren't planning, but we discovered that Robin was pregnant. So I'm going to have my first kid. I'm in my mid-20s and I'm a little nervous about this, but at the same time, I'm excited. I remember putting my hand on her uh, a tummy just to feel the heartbeat. I remember playing classical music. I'd put the speaker right up to the womb because I'd heard that if you play classical music, your kid will be smarter. And coming from East Tennessee, you know, I needed a little bit of help. And so I would do all those things. We talked about what we were gonna do when the child was born. And then Robin in her third trimester, uh, She was driving home, I think, from the gym. And there was an army vehicle on the other side of the road and they had been drinking too much and they crossed the center line and struck and hit my wife head on. And my wife was amazingly spared from death. I mean, it was amazing. When I got to the hospital, the seatbelt, where the seatbelt was, there was bruising all over her body, but yet she had been spared, but we had lost our first child. That's something we don't talk a lot about a lot and something we don't talk about that much still. But as I look back at that moment, I remember how as a new husband and a potentially new father, I did not know how to deal with this. Part of me was angry at God. A part of me was angry that somehow God didn't step in and intervene. I was so poor at comforting my wife that a good friend of hers drove three hours from 
the southern regions of Zimbabwe just to sit with my wife and talk with her and coach her through this. I was totally useless in this setting. And then I saw what happened. We were ministering to the Shona culture in Zimbabwe. And in the Shona culture, it is believed by the women of that culture that if you lose a child, it's because you have been cursed by God and there is some great sin in your life for which you are paying. So there were so many women who had lost children who were silent and who were shy and who were in the background, believing somehow that they could never be close to God because they had been cursed. Little did we know that when my wife Robin stood on that stage and said to them, I have lost my child, but I am not cursed. God has not abandoned me. God loves me. This child always belonged to God and I will see my child again. To me, inside I was broken, but on the outside I started to see how my wife's testimony in the midst of this did more than three or four years of ministry of preaching and teaching because now they had seen God's work in the midst of their lives and in the life of the pastor's wife. I cannot tell you the catalytic effect that had on the Shona women of our church is they began to stand up proudly and know and believe that God had not abandoned him, that even in the worst, darkest night, the brightest light could shine. I'll never forget that. Someone had given Robin a book by Dr. Jack Hayford, and she read a book called, I Will Hold Him in Heaven. And somehow that gave Robin the stability to be able to experience the prevailing presence of a, of a God who loved her and who ministered to her in the deepest, darkest time of her life. But the Shona women gained that courage. They held their head up high. They realized that God had not abandoned them. And God was glorified by a woman who responded appropriately to a tragedy in her life. Now you might say, wait a minute, let's go back to theory or philosophy. Did God cause this event? Did God cause the drivers of an army vehicle to drink too much and cross the middle line? Well, that's preposterous. What the Bible does promise is that only Jesus takes a disadvantage, turns it into an advantage and uses it for his glory. And here we go again. It's about the glory of God. And the wild life understands and embraces the relationship between a fallen world and God's ability to glorify himself through the events of his people that the truth about life, death, and eternity might be illuminated through us. But does that mean that God just abandons us and doesn't walk with us through our time of difficulty? Somebody might say, well, could God not have prevented this tragedy? Of course, if God is God, yes. You say, why didn't he? Well, I only have two answers. Number one, the only way God could remove the possibility of every tragedy is to remove our freedom. And to remove our freedom is to remove the potential for love. But second, whatever the reason is, it can't be because God did not love Robin and me. He's already answered that question as he gave up what was most precious to him so that he would not lose us. So there has to be something I cannot see. And I think for a moment that God wants to bring the women of Zimbabwe into his love and care. He sees these events colliding. He has trained Robin for this moment. God is glorified. Women come to him for eternity. Robin meets Jesus in a way that she had never known him before. Isn't it true that in abundance, God seldom gets the glory, but in deliverance, God is praised. But deliverance and oppression are inextricably tied together.
And our response during the oppression determines whether or not God will be glorified in our lives. Thanks for joining us for this message on Today with Jeff Vines. We'll have to leave it there for today, but there are a few more principles to learn from Gideon's life and actions. There simply has to be a point of understanding somewhere along the line that your life is not about you. It's about God and His glory and God will lead you to do. He will cause and allow events into your life. He will lead you to do that which brings Him, not you, the most glory, but He will sustain you as you follow Him in obedience. Join us next time for the rest of this message on Today with Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.